Awesome. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, everybody. It's lovely to be here. Lovely to see you all. Uh, I always think it's such an awesome privilege when I get to look into the Word of God and prepare something to share with you lovely people. And uh, I'm immensely excited for today. Uh, it's, it's funny because um, often, like, when I, lately when I've been preparing sermons, I've been sort of writing down very thoroughly, whereas this one... I just had lots of stuff in my head and I've been, at, I've been working at Economy Warehouse and I just have one verse in my mind the whole day and as I'm wheeling out trolleys, I've been meditating on it. And uh, so I'm not exactly sure how this morning's going to go, but um, I'm just really keen to give glory to God and to point all of us to, to God and, and, and to reflect on, on his greatness and his glory and, and what he's done for us. So I trust that you'll be blessed this morning. Uh, I'm going I'm to pray as well because I think that's a good way to start. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning that we can gather here together to worship you, Lord, to lift our, our thoughts to you, Lord, to set our affections on you. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified in our midst, Lord, that you would be praised and that you would help us to have hearts that are open to you and that look to you. Lord, I pray that you would move among us, that you'd work in our lives and our hearts, Lord, and that you would draw us to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've got a little slideshow, and basically the way I thought I'd go about this morning is, uh, is four, four sections. Uh, the first, I just want to go into the, a bit of the setting of this chapter. We're in chapter 5 of Daniel. Uh, I want to talk a bit about the, the history of the place, the context, set it up. Uh, then I'm going to talk a bit about the prophecies about this chapter, because there's a lot of prophecies that all get um, point towards this chapter and, and get fulfilled here. And so it'd be really cool to look at that. Then we're going to walk through the chapter itself. Uh, we'll look at the events, sort of reading through. And then I'm going to just finish with um, some, some personal comments on it, some things that, as I've been reflecting on it, have really stood out to me. So that's the order of things. So we'll get started. So, uh, yeah, the first thing is about the context. Um, a lovely thing about the book of Daniel is that there's a lot of, um, a lot of history in the place. This is a place that... Um, uh, it, it really, it really happened, um, and and it's awesome when you can find stuff that um, that goes along with 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 uh, what you read in the Bible, and you can really see ah, oh, there's there's all this stuff that gives more information about it. And if you've just been reading through the book of Daniel, um, last chapter, chapter four was all about King Nebuchadnezzar, and then chapter five we suddenly have King Belshazzar, and it's probably good to know that there's actually a space of about over, over two decades between the, these two chapters. Um, king Nebuchadnezzar has died. Uh, there's been a whole string of different kings that have um, been trying to take the throne of Babylon. Most of them only very short-lived. And then finally, a guy called Nabonidus has come along. He's um, assassinated the previous king, so uh, with the help of his son Belshazzar, and uh, he, he's become king of king of the place. Um, but he, he's a little bit of a, a weirdo, uh, <laughs> and he ends up going out into the far reaches of the empire, worshipping some strange god. It's, it's really weird stuff. Um, and so Belshazzar, his son, becomes king in, um, in, in Babylon, in, um, like a co-regency sort of thing, which later on in the chapter we'll see that um, Belshazzar can only offer the, um, the third place in the kingdom. And that's because the first place in the kingdom is held by this Nabonidus guy. Uh, so that, that's just interesting stuff. Um, it, but... The reason I thought I'd bring it out, though, is that it, it's one of those cool things that really shows the, um, the truth 
of the Bible because Belshazzar, his name was lost to history. Um, so uh, just a hundred years later, we've got um, some uh, historians um, who started writing about Babylon and that, that, they don't remember who Belshazzar even is. They're all talking about Nabonidus and when um, people started looking into this stuff, they started saying, okay, the Bible's just making up this Belshazzar guy, you know, and, and, and there's a lot of prophecy in the book of Daniel that people like to get a, around by saying, well, Daniel was written at a later date and they just in, in, invented these stories. So, well, in 1924, they started digging in Babylon and they found Belshazzar's name quite a bit. Um, I think it's nearly 40 times they've found Belshazzar's name now. And so the Bible's been proved right. And, and it's really cool because it also shows that the book of Daniel was written at a, as an eyewitness account. It has details that within 100 years were already lost, but we have them recorded in the Bible. So I'll throw that out there. That, that, that's pretty cool, I reckon. But anyway, so here we are in Babylon. It's the 11th of October, 539 BC. And Babylon was a, a crazy city. All, all the people who write about it in um, antiquity, they all speak of it with sort of almost a reverence, almost an awe. Like, it, 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 crazy. One of the guys, I was reading um, Herodotus, and, and he just goes, the walls are 100 metres high, which, they're not that high, but he's just blown away. He's got, he goes, they're 50 metres thick. He said, you can have houses on each side of the walls and chariots running in between. Like, he's just like, this city... It's just beyond your, your wildest dreams. It's an incredible place. And um, we do know that they were massive walls. And it was a very secure place. But at this time, at this point in history, there's an army that's encamped around about Babylon. And it's the Persians and the Medes. And the, the people in Babylon are feeling pretty secure. They've got their big walls and the, apparently they had enough food and water stockpile to last a 20-year siege, which for a city of the, the immense size of Babylon was a, a massive amount of time. So they're feeling pretty good, so they decide to have a party. And, and, and this is crazy. They've got an army outside the walls and King Belshazzar, there's the first verse, it says, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles. And this is recorded all throughout history. The, the historians who spoke at the time, they, they talk about this great feast that Babylon had when the Persians came to attack him. This is just, the, the, the hubris is, is staggering. But yeah, there we go. So, oh, and I, I did have this little um, quote from uh, Xenophon which um, talks about that because I thought it was quite interesting because he's, He's outside, um, this is King Cyrus um, of the Persians, he's outside with his army outside the walls. And he basically says, my friends, countrymen, lend me your ears. The river has made way for us, because um, they were going to go under the, the walls of Babylon through the river. And, and he, he basically gives them this whole speech about, hey, um, we've fought the Babylonians before, we've defeated them, but this time we're going to fall upon them at a time when many of them are asleep, many drunk, and none of them in battle array, for all the city is feasting this night. So there you have it, just a little bit of the history around the place. But I'd like to move to the prophecies about this day, because there's a lot, a lot of prophecies. And um, first of all, we go to the book of Isaiah. These were written 150 years before this day's events. And some of the things that are, are written are, are quite staggering 
Um, so first off, I've got this verse in Isaiah 45 where it says, this is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus. He names this king by name. Whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armour, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. And I, I should mention that Babylon was very well known for having its massive gates of bronze. I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. And I think we'll uh, see those words really come to fruition in, as we read this chapter. That I am the Lord and there is no other. And then we have uh, more of Isaiah. Uh, and this is where he's talking about Babylon. He says, Babylon, you have trusted in your wickedness and have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and knowledge mislead you when you say to yourself, I am and there is none besides me. Disaster will come upon you and you will not know how to conjure it away. A calamity will fall upon you that you cannot ward off with a ransom. A catastrophe you cannot foresee will suddenly come upon you. And when you think of the Babylonians feasting their way through the night, you can see they certainly didn't foresee what was about to happen. And um, one of my favourite ones from Isaiah is Isaiah 21, and again talking about Babylon, he says... A dire vision has been shown to me. The traitor betrays, the looter takes loot. Elam, which is where the Persians came from, attack. Media lay siege. I will bring to an end all the groaning she caused. I am staggered by what I hear. I am bewildered by what I see. My heart falters. Fear makes me tremble. The twilight I long for has become a horror for me. They set the tables, they spread the rugs, they eat, they drink. Babylon has fallen, has fallen. And this passage, I find so many cool things in it, but one thing I'll point out, that the traitor betrays, um, the person that told the Persians how to divert the river was um, apparently one of the king's trusted men, according to some of the historians. So um, there was the, the, the traitor there. Um, and also, I, I feel like this is so written from... King Belshazzar's point of view when he, he you know, the, the twilight I long for has become a horror for me. And as we read through the passage, I think those um, words will become very clear. So Isaiah talks uh, about this day that's coming. Um, and also Jeremiah. Jeremiah, who was more, much more a contemporary of the time, he says uh, to the Jews, this is what the Lord says, you will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. So it's probably worth pointing out here that the Jews have been in Babylon for 70 years at this time of this feast. So the Jews are kind of getting excited because Isaiah talks about Cyrus coming, and Isaiah also talks about um, Cyrus, King Cyrus being the one who will send them home. And the 70 years is nearly up. So I can just imagine the excitement of the of, of the Israelites as they're looking around at this Persian army and King Cyrus there thinking, wow, God is about to fulfill his promises to us and we'll be going home again. 
And Jeremiah goes on to say, um, A destroyer will come against Babylon. I will make her officials and wise men drunk. Her governors, officers and warriors as well, they will sleep forever and not awake. Seems like a great time to have a feast. And then Daniel himself has prophesied that the Medes and the Persians are going to take over Babylon. Um, later on in the book he says, In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision. And in my vision I saw a ram with two horns. I watched the ram as it charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. And later on the angel Gabriel comes to Daniel and explains the vision and says explicitly, the two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. So there we go. We've got a little bit of the, um, the setting. We've got these prophecies that are leading up to this day. You can sort of sense the excitement in the, um, the Israelites as they're thinking about all the things that have been um, prophesied and now they're about to witness them coming. But uh, let's turn to the chapter now. And we'll see what King Belshazzar's reaction to all these events is. So we have King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and he drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking with his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. I can just imagine that King Belshazzar has, has heard whispers of what the Jews are thinking. and He's heard whispers in the empire about how they're going to be going home after 70 years. And maybe he's heard whispers of the prophecy that a man named Cyrus will come and defeat the Babylonians. You can just imagine that playing on his mind and as he's, as he's drinking, he just loses all inhibitions and goes, not on my watch. And he sets himself up against Yahweh. And he knows, he knows Yahweh, the God of the Bible, because he'd seen it in Nebuchadnezzar. He'd seen what God had done to him. But Belshazzar, he kind of goes, you may have done that to Nebi boy, but you're not going to do it to me. And he does this incredible act of defiance and it just seems crazy that it's right as the Persian army is around him that he goes, now's the time to just shake my fist at God. And so he gets the, the sacred vessels of gold and silver that have been brought from the temple in Jerusalem and he brings them out to a drunken feast. And what do they do with them? They bring the gold goblets that have been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, they drank wine from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. An absolute sacrilege, a blasphemy of the highest order. Literally just shaking their fists at God, laughing at him. And... Uh, they're having a good time, but it doesn't go so well. Suddenly, we read, 
Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall. Near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. He's terrified. You know, we've seen in previous chapters King Nebuchadnezzar being troubled and worried by, by the things that have been happening and by the dreams he's had, by his interactions with Yahweh, with God. But King Belshazzar, he, this is something else entirely. This man is terrified. You look into these words here, it's like his face literally goes white as a ghost. His knees knock together and his legs give way. He, his body turns to rubber in pure panic. He is terrified. The words there can literally mean that he basically wet himself. It's extreme panic, extreme terror. And what does he do? It goes, the king called out for the enchanters, astrologers and diviners. And the word there called out, it literally means with great strength. He cries out. He's screaming. So you've got this man who's been partying, he's been shaking his fist at God, and suddenly this God that he's been mocking has turned up right in front of him. And instantly he's realised that he's gone too far. He's realised that he's stepped over his boundaries. He's realised that everything that he has, just like his, his father, King Nebuchadnezzar, everything that King Nebuchadnezzar had was given to him by God. And God had given Belshazzar what, what little glory and power and nobility he had. It all came from God. And now this God was there to take it away. And he is terrified and he's panicked and his knees are shaking and he's terrified and he's screaming out for his wise men to come and help him. And, and look what he says. He says, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. This man is desperate. He's saying, whatever you need, I'll give it to you. All my wealth, everything. I'll make you the highest person in the kingdom. I'll give you robes of purple, the royal color of Babylon. I'll give you chains of gold. In, in, that, in that time, to wear chains of gold meant that you were a powerful person, that you were full of wealth and power. And he's saying, I will give you whatever you need. And he's screaming for help. When we go against God, man, there is no help that is enough. And all the king's wise men come in. But they can't read the writing or tell the king what it means. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified. And his face grew even more pale. And his nobles were baffled. And then enters the queen, who's heard all the voices the clamouring, the commotion, and she comes in and she tells uh, Belshazzar, look, there is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy God in him, Daniel. Call for him. He will tell you what this writing means. And so long story short, Daniel is brought before the king and the king says, can you tell me what this means? And, and he offers Daniel all, all these gifts and these riches and his power and all that sort of stuff and and Daniel, we've got to remember at this time, Daniel is probably at least in his 80s, if not older. He's an older man at this point. 
And he comes in and he knows, he's already had these prophecies that the Persian and the Medes are going to take down Babylon. He knows that the 70 years is up. And, and he sees this king, this King Belshazzar, who, who should have known better, who should have known that he needed to honour Yahweh, not just mock him. And he sees all this, this feasting and this frivolity and this reverie they've been in, and, and he pulls no punches. Let me read what he says. It's, just, it's straight hard-hitting. Like you, don't, you, you don't get the feeling he's talking to the most powerful person in the empire. It's just as it is. He says... Daniel answered the king and he says, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. O king, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. He was a powerful man. But, but, when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. And you praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. And therefore, God sent the hand that wrote the inscription. And the inscription that was written is this. And I almost feel like by this time, the writing is just the icing on the cake. You know, Daniel's already just laid it all out for him. And for Belshazzar, I think, I think his conscience is testifying against him right now that he has messed up badly. He's set himself up against God, and this is not going to end well. And Daniel says, the inscription is this, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. And this is what the words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck 
And he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom, in a kingdom that was only going to last a few hours. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. It's an amazing story, isn't it? Just incredible, this man who sets himself up against God and very swiftly finds out that God is God and, and he is not. The night he longed for becomes a terror to him. So there we have the story. And that's the story that I've been reading for the last month or two and reflecting on and thinking of. And I'd like to move now to some of the things that really stood out to me as I've, as I've read through this. And the first thing I want to talk about is the, the, the terror of the king, of King Belshazzar, when, when he has an interaction with God and he, and, and he realizes that God is judging him. Because it makes me think of the coming day of judgment when we all will stand before God. And in the, um, in the Bible, it's, it's spoken of with very, very picturesque language, very graphic language. Um, we go to Revelation chapter 6, which is in the back of the Bible, so I should be able to find it. In Revelation chapter 6, Verse 15 to 17, it says, The kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? I thought that verse was so telling to think of these people who, when the great day of God's judgment came, they were terrified and they were calling out for the rocks to cover them. And um, Isaiah talks about that in chapter 2, um, about people crying out for the, for the rocks to, to cover them from God. And there's few verses here that talk about this judgment that says that people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment and Romans 14 verse 10 to 12 says we will all stand before the judgment seat of God for it is written as I live says the Lord every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God and when I was thinking about this coming day of judgment, when we will all stand before God and thinking of the, um, you know, the prophet Joel calls it the great and terrible day of the Lord. It's terrifying to think of standing before a holy God as sinful men. And the verse that's really been on my mind so much as I've looked through this passage comes from the inscription that God wrote in the wall where Daniel interprets Tekel as saying, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Or as this version said, and you don't measure up. And I've had those words just in my mind so much over the last month. 
You have been weighed on the scales and you don't measure up. And I'm thinking that's terrifying. Do you feel that? Do you, do you see that when you look at the terror of Belshazzar, doesn't that give you a representation of how we should feel when we think of what it would be like when we stand before God and give an account to him and he weighs us against his righteousness, against his holiness, against his perfectness? We'll stand before God and I think we'll see that same thing. We've been weighed on the scales and we don't measure up. So often when we see um, really bad people, we, we want to think of them as just monsters, you know, as, as people, and we think, oh, we're not like that. We wouldn't do that. You know, we're not, we're not like King Belshazzar. We're not going to go and shake our fists at heaven and, and, and openly mock and blaspheme God. And yet the God that we're going to stand before is not a God of, of relativism. We kind of say, oh, at least we're better than this guy. The God that we'll be weighed against is perfect and holy and completely just. And when we are weighed against God, we will find that we don't measure up. And to think of standing before God on our own merits is horrifying. And I, I think that whenever we look to ourselves, our own schemes, our own devices, our own ways of trying to make ourselves better, trying to make ourselves right before God, of trying to be um, extra religious or extra devoted, it all falls short. If we rely on human endeavour to bridge the gap between us and God, it falls short, woefully short. And one day... We will stand before God and I don't want to be standing there feeling the terror of a man who's standing there as a, as a sinner, dead in his sins. And as I looked on that verse, I've just been reminded again and again and again of the gospel or what God did for us. Romans 5 verse 8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, let, it, let, let there be no other name on our lips but Christ Jesus. Why would we stand before God in our sinfulness and, and try to make ourselves better and try to bridge the gap to our own merit through the things that we do? We have to look to Christ. We have to look to Jesus and the work that he's done. There's no other way that men can be saved. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes, we are sinners. Yes, we've been weighed in the balances we are found wanting, but when we put on the robes of righteousness of Christ, what a beautiful, beautiful thing that is. This free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a free gift and it's an amazing, wonderful, beautiful thing. And as I've thought about this, while well, pacing up and down the alley with my trolley, putting boxes away, and I've just thought about how I don't deserve this and that just thinking about the beauty of this, it, it is just 
flabbergasted me that God would do this for me. And I thought about the mercy of God and the richness of God. And also that God says, today is the day of salvation. If you hear my voice, listen to me. And in Revelation he says, let him who hears say, come, come and drink of the rivers of life. There is coming a day when we will realise that there's no return. There's coming a day when like Belshazzar, suddenly it was over. It was too late. There was nothing he could do. God's judgment was made and it was final. It was too late for him. But it's not too late for us. No, we can look to God. We can look to the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, and we can be saved. And it's an incredible thing. And I'd encourage you to to look to Jesus while you can. And for us who know we've been saved, how wonderful it is to reflect on what God has done for us and to come to God knowing that through Jesus Christ we are saved and we are made righteous. And it makes me think of the mercy of God and how rich and beautiful and incredible it is. Ephesians 2 verse 4 to 5 says, But God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. If you have been saved by God this morning and you know that you stand in Christ as a new creation, then won't you join with me in worshipping God and proclaiming how rich is his mercy proclaiming how great is his love, which he has loved us. And I pray that that will be in your minds throughout this coming week and months and years and that we will, together as a church, join in worshipping God and in proclaiming his names to all people because there is no other name by which we are saved. And so I've asked that the music team will come up and sing His Mercy is More because it has these words that are just incredibly awesome. It talks about our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Let's look to God and sing with gusto. Amen.